Second Peter, so please open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Second Peter, and we continue to study that book. We've gone through First Peter, a book that was about coming persecution. Second Peter has a focus that is on coming false teachers, coming false teaching. And we'll be in that for a while, but this is still preparatory to some of the direct addresses of false teaching, false teachers, what to look out for, what to avoid. And it's telling people how, Christians, believers, how to be sanctified in a way that allows them to have discernment against the lies of the enemy. Discernment against the lies of the enemy. So we will be focused on uh, verses 5 through 11. I'm going to begin at the beginning because we're still so early in this book. We talked last week about the fact that Simon Peter is the one who wrote Second Peter, and it's a mark of the foolishness of our age that the majority of scholars believe that Second Peter was written by someone else. Those people biblically are called fools, and so we're going to look again, at starting from the beginning here. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. This passage is about sanctification. It's about preparation of ourselves, of our minds, the transformation of our minds through the word that is described to prevent us from conforming to the pattern of this world. It's about living a fruitful Christian life. It's about the gospel affecting you and impacting you. It is not about the way that we earn our salvation through a list 
of duties and responsibilities and we're hoping that there's a curve because we're not doing that great, but as long as we get most of it done, then God will say, you get to heaven, Clayton, because you worked pretty hard, you had a decent amount of brotherly affection, your steadfastness was about an 82. People get confused because they're, they're looking at this as talking about the wrong thing. None of this passage, none of this is about justification. All of this is about sanctification. He says already to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's his completed work that gives us the ability to be partakers in the divine nature. But as partakers in the divine nature, this is the, the extent to which this is referring to justification at all. It's telling people who are worried about whether or not they've ever become a Christian that if you think that you may have not become a Christian and your life looks nothing like Jesus Christ, you, you probably haven't become a Christian. These abilities to do these things come through the power of the Spirit. And you're not a partaker of the divine nature if you don't look anything like this. It's Satan's a judo expert. So people veer from being very far off on one area of sin, and then they're, they're kind of getting that corrected, and they want run way the other way. If you believe all is grace, and you're into cheap grace, you need to read John MacArthur. And if you believe that you're earning your way to salvation by following a lot of rules, you need to read Brennan Manning. And those guys could not be further opposite. But it depends on where you're in error. It depends on where you are in error in the way you're understanding Scripture. Again, just because it's important to think about who he's saying isn't saved... 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. When he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, is that a picture of a person who's never gotten saved? No. It can't be. How can I say that so firmly? It can't be. Because it says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What is that a picture of then? Oh, it's a picture of something we have to be careful not to be. It's a Christian who's living an ineffective or unfruitful life because although they have knowledge of what Jesus has done, that they're partakers of the divine nature, their life rejects it every day by the way they live. By the way they live. Here is an example. If you say, I am a biblical inerrantist, I believe the Bible has no errors in it, it edits us, we don't edit it. Okay? That's the position of Lonzo Community Church. It's the position of our parachurch ministry, Thrive. We are inoffensive to many folks because we're very ecumenical on lots of issues. 
But if you think, well, the Bible is mostly true, you're not going to like our group. You're not going to fit in with us. But if you say the Bible is absolute authority, it's absolutely true, and you never read it, there's not really much of a point. Oh, this guy's a great inerrantist. Wait, wait, it seems like he's living in sin consistently in really obvious ways that he'd be convicted of if he ever cracked the book. Well, I mean, I'm just saying his, his, his doctrinal positions are, are decent. That's what this is talking about. For this very reason, what's the reason? Because God made you, in his precious and very great promises, partakers of the divine nature. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Let's start there. Your faith, who gave you the faith? God. Because of you? No, because of his goodness. He gave you faith. Now, build virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is habits of godliness. Habits of godliness. Therefore, brothers, in the last verse, be, uh, verse 10, be all more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, today in Group Me, I shared Alan Iverson in a short video. I've never used Alan Iverson before as a sermon illustration. Kind of surprised that that came up when I was doing my sermon preparation. Is something I thought maybe this will be helpful. I, I'm now looking at, there, maybe it's helpful because there's someone online who really need to hear a word that's tied to Alan Iverson. I have no idea. If you are here in person, can you raise your hand if you have ever heard of Alan Iverson? Okay, good. Good. Most of you have. Alan Iverson had a famous rant that took place 18 years ago. My beautiful wife is younger than me. She was not familiar with it. I was in the midst of a time when I probably caught Sports Center three or four times a day um, 18 years ago. And I knew the rant. I could probably quote most of the rant. But the rant, in the rant, in about two minutes, he says the word practice 22 times. 22 times. Practice? We talking about practice? Not a game, not a game. We talking about practice? So it's this long rant that he had. And the reason that he was so upset is because he said, I show up for the game. I do what I need to do at the game. But his coach, an NBA Hall of Fame coach, said Allen Iverson is an incredible basketball player, an amazing basketball player, a player that I want to build my entire team around, our entire roster around. I'm going to pay him the most money. He's a guy I think we can win at the highest level with. But he needs to get better at practice. Well, the... The writers, there was kind of a divide. The writers, many of the writers said, no one goes harder than Allen Iverson. No one loves the game more than Allen Iverson. He's right. The coach needs to shut up. Why is he focused on practice? Well, why is an NBA Hall of Fame coach focused on practice? Because practice is about putting in the habits that make you succeed in the game. Practice is about building the habits that when you have the most important spotlight on you, what happens is instinct. What happens is trained. What happens is that you're walking out what you've practiced without even having to think about it. When you see someone who is excellent at anything, there's been a ton of practice that has gone into that. And 
our culture celebrates, it celebrates sports celebrities. It celebrates people who have practiced music. It celebrates people who have practiced delivering rhymed verse. It's called hip-hop. Most of us don't celebrate the uh, poetry slams as much. Our culture celebrates people who practice things, but our culture hates people who have practiced obeying God because that's the narrow way. And it's an affront to everyone who's still in charge of their own lives. Oh, I don't, I don't, that guy seems like he's, he thinks he's better than me. Well, no, anyone who explains theology well at all, at a really basic level, at a 20-second conversation, is going to say, I'm not better than you, but Jesus is perfect, and you're going to hell. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's the truth. That's the truth that we're called to proclaim to others, and we do it out of love. We're going to get there in this list. We do it out of love, but the very beginning Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. All this really looks like is taking the truth that you know you believe in your head, knowing it enough in your heart that it shapes your daily habits. It's what you do with your time. It's how you live your life. Good oral hygiene is something that is either habitual or not. I don't know if you're like me and your chart for flossing would have a huge overlap to the two weeks immediately following a visit to the dentist. You can't really make up for it when, uh, claim you, you got, what? Okay, it seems like you're brushing. You brush consistently. Yes, yes. But this, this in the part here, the, the brush toothbrush doesn't reach. You haven't been flossing, have you? No, I have not. Have not. Our habits are who we are over time and what we give ourselves to. Thomas Chalmers is a famous, brilliant theologian, pastor, lived in Scotland. Chalmers wrote about the power of habits and said, argued, that love, the love of God, is the only way that we can replace our affections, our worldly habits, with habits that honor God. His most famous message is a message called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. John Piper describes it in a way that's maybe a bit more accessible than those of us who have had high school level science. Piper says, if you had a lab with unlimited resources, what would be the best way to get air out of a beaker? The beaker is sitting on the table. What's the best way in this lab to get the air out of it? There's lots of ways when you're kind of riddling people thinking about it. A vacuum, how we, you know, temperature. You know the best way to do it? Fill that beaker with water. A beaker full of water is not full of air. And that sum, summarizes what Chalmers was teaching. Chalmers says that our desire that's innate in who we are is to love something. 
Chalmers says, my purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method of saying that sin is bad is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that the latter method, that Jesus is good, will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. Now, now, this passage, what are you hungry for? By which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises are the promises of God precious to you. If they are, if you love Jesus, then supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. What type of knowledge is this? The, the Greek word for complete knowledge is not used here and it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Complete knowledge. That's not that kind of knowledge. This is learning your desire to, in an ongoing way, learn more and more and more and more. My friend Andy is here with us today. He's an attorney. He's been an attorney for a long time. If someone who just finished, and we're in weird COVID time, someone who just finished, they may not have to take the bar exam. They never have to take the bar exam. I'll be more jealous of the 2020 class of law than any class in history. But if someone came and said to him right out of law school, Andy, I'm ready to practice law, practice law. They're going to have tons. Honestly, most of them are going to be somewhat worthless starting out. And they're going to have tons of questions, and they're not going to be helpful to him until they've been practicing law for years. And yet, if you meet a 70-year-old who's smart, and they've been practicing law, for 45 years, when you ask them a question, they may not even be awesome at explaining it, but they know how to do everything. They know how to do everything. Guys, here's what's so sad, but it's, it's ineffective or unfruitful knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you meet a Christian who is 70 years old and they've been a Christian for 55 years and they don't look and smell like Jesus, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. Because everything we practice, we get better and better and better at. And when the ultimate test comes, this is Peter writing from prison. Peter writing to people who have already braced for the persecution that's promised. Peter writing knowing he's going to die. And he's rejoicing in the precious promises of Jesus. Guys, remember Peter? Do you know what we're talking about here? Peter, the guy who denied Jesus, wasn't sure which side would win, told Jesus, I'll never deny you, then denied him three times. It's that Peter. It's that Peter who is now practiced of decades of living a life that honors Jesus. He's practiced. So, Knowledge 
is not complete knowledge. It's knowledge that grows. Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. And guys, this is not a hard and fast rule. If you are a Christian and you do not have a quiet time that is 45 minutes of reading and 15 minutes of praying, and by the way, even if it hurts your knees, your praying needs to be kneeling. It's not that. It's saying if you don't have a quiet time at all, then you don't value Scripture. If you're not listening to God, then you don't want Him to be in charge of you. That's what it's saying. It's not giving you exact rules. It's saying you're to be growing in godliness, growing in practice of supplementing your faith because you want to, because the love of Christ compels you, because the love of Christ controls you. Self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. Where does steadfastness come from? He's told us in 1 Peter, it comes from suffering well. Suffering well. And here is a truth that I think I've seen so much that I can say in my own life and in the lives of Christians in the United States. One of the reasons we're spiritually weak is because we don't suffer enough. We don't suffer enough. When you talk to someone who is wise and godly and has had a life of growth in Christ, and you ask them about the times of their life that they grew the most, looking back on it on a 50 or 60 or 70 year time horizon, they will say the periods of suffering drew me closer to Christ. When I knew that I couldn't do it on my own, when I knew that I didn't have enough in my flesh, I cried out to God for rescue. And he heard my cry. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Brotherly affection for who? Who are Christians called to love? We're called to love our friends. We're called to love our neighbors. And we're called to love our enemies. But our love for one another within the church should be a shining star that other people go, man, y'all don't have anything in common. Why do y'all love each other like that? Why are you willing to give your time? Why are you willing to sacrifice? Why? What in the world is going on over there? Lonzo Community Church is weird. I do not get it. What is happening? Why do you love each other? Why are you helping each other? Oh, oh, so-and-so's got to move. Well, I guess you're going to help them because they helped you move, right? No, no, no. We love each other. And here's the other part of this. This is something that's been corrupted through, I don't know, I can give lots of examples I can think of, but uh, I would say a fraternity system hazing. Shared suffering is something Jesus promised for all Christians, all Christians, all believers. Remember First Peter, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when persecution comes. If, by the way, another winnowing, if you're wondering, is this person a Christian over here? I don't know. They've never encountered persecution in their entire life. They've never made disciples. They've never shared truth. They've, yeah, I don't, that doesn't look like what Jesus promised for all believers, what Jesus promised for everyone who follows him, for everyone who walks in obedience. But as we are walking in obedience and suffering together, we will have a love for one another that grows and grows and grows. You have stood next to me in the battle. 
the armor of God, I'm not going to go down. I, I want to, ADD is pulling me that way. I'm not going to talk about shield walls and historical battles. But I'll say this. It's not just shared suffering together. It's shared steadfastness that suffering produces together that builds and engenders brotherly, sisterly affection. The family of God loving each other because you've served alongside each other, you've suffered alongside each other, and you've seen the grace and love of God poured out on each other and often through each other. Brotherly affection with love, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, when are we going to be fully made righteous? When will we have all sin removed from us? Not on this side of eternity. Not in this earthly dwelling. Not in this tent that we're in now. But in heaven, we will be made like him. We will have no more sin. But guys, do you understand that part of the mystery, the great promises, the beauty of what is promised now, now, here on earth, is why we're called Christians. Little Christs. Christ imitators. Christ followers. It's that when we're diligent, when we're pursuing it with everything we have, when we practice, we look more and more like Jesus. It gets better and better. Our habits, our inclinations are not the flesh, not to follow the flesh, not to be selfish. Oh, I can't wait. I know it won't be complete until it's heaven. But when I'm 80 years old, if my inclination is to selflessness instead of my inclination, my bent being selfishness, oh, praise God. And if you've spent time with people who have practiced these qualities for decades, you see a mastery that is incredibly encouraging, incredibly beautiful. And overall, that is not for their glory in the slightest because they know that there is nothing good in them and that everything good that's coming in their life is through the power of Jesus Christ. That is this blessing that we're called into now, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the one who has saved us, rescued us, redeemed us, and whose lordship, whose leadership as our boss, we welcome, because the one who loves us the very best is the one who shaped us, made us, knows us most, and his plan for our life is good, pleasing, and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to follow you. We desire to bring you glory and honor. We desire to put into practice the various ways in which we can be shaped by your word, in which we can be 
filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and and we can live and walk out our faith. We want people to see you when they look at us. Thank you that because of your strength that's possible. Give us joy this week. Help us to think about practice. Help us to think about what we give our time to. And help us joyfully to walk in obedience to you. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.